I'm Will Baker, president of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. Welcome to our continuing podcast series, Turning the Tide, Saving the Bay. I'm really pleased to have John Arway uh, join us. John is head of the Pennsylvania Fish and Boat Commission. Are you president, executive director, major domo, John? What's your official title? Right now, I'm executive director, yes. Executive director of the Pennsylvania Fish and Boat Commission, uh, and a, a lifelong outdoorsman, a great fisherman, and somebody who's been a real champion of the Susquehanna River and all the rivers and streams uh, running through Pennsylvania, and we're always interested because how goes Pennsylvania streams uh, is how goes the bay in many respects. So welcome, John. Thanks very much, Will. Thanks for having me. I guess um, a, a good way to dive in uh, would be to ask you to talk a little bit about the Susquehanna River. It is, of course, the largest river, the largest tributary coming into the Chesapeake. Virtually half of all the fresh water entering the bay comes down the Susquehanna, drains, what, probably about half of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. So give, give us a little bit of background about the Susquehanna, its length, its breadth, some of the facts and figures that uh, I've heard you tell before. Yeah, well, it, we consider it a great river for us. EPA has a classification of great rivers, but it's really uh, a great river for us because it, it, it really, a lot of our history, in Pennsylvania, but in the nation, has really been formed around the Susquehanna River. We had, uh, at one time, we had a magnificent Shadron, American Shadron in the river. And, um, in fact, uh, my agency will be celebrating our 150th anniversary next year. We actually formed around restoring that shad run to the Susquehanna River, and we're still working at it. We're trying to uh, uh, put passageways around the major dams that are downstream and still trying to get the shad up to the river spawning grounds around the American Eel and other, other migratory fish that carrying. So it's got a tremendous uh, place in, in, in the country's history, and we're really proud of the Susquehanna, in fact, uh, so that it, it was once a world-class bass fishery. And uh, one of the concerns that we've had recently is that it's, we don't believe it, it is any longer. We've got, we've got um, um, world-class fishermen at Duffy Cray and Bob Clouser, but they're fishing anymore because it doesn't support the quality fishery that it once did. And uh, we started seeing that change back in 2005 when we started seeing fish, uh, young fish Fed uh, up and is dying uh, young fish in the river, and we were seeing receiving early reports about that that fish care, and we further investigated it and saw that these young fish had sores and lesions on them um, that were caused by bacterial infection, and then we began investigating the river and have been ever since. You you've put a lot on the plate there. Let's back up just a second. So, the early days, Susquehanna River. Uh, shad running all the way up to Binghamton, New York. It must have been a magnificent way of connecting the bay downstream with the rivers upstream. Uh, t tell us a little bit about that shad run and the fishing industry that relied on it. Well, it was really a subsistence fishery. A lot of the towns around along the river actually um, subsisted off of off of American shad, and and in fact. Um, um, you know, there's, 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 uh, there's a lot of communities that really, really um, lived off the shop, but also sold the shop when they shipped them to market. Um, 
and and uh, a lot of those communities that still exist today have have their origin in uh, the cause of, of American shadows on on the Susquehanna River. And the first dam was built nineteen was it twenty seven? Um, I have the number eight seven. I was thinking it was like nineteen ten, but I could be wrong. Well, but number twenty seven. But there were two smaller dams. In fact, there was a dam called the Columbia Dam on the river back when my agency was was um, was formed in eighteen sixty six. And uh, there was a bill in our legislature that actually created funding for paying a fish passageway in eighteen sixty six around the Columbia Dam. 1866, they were talking about fish passage around the dam on the Susquehanna. Absolutely. So today we have three dams. Conowingo is the southernmost and then two more upriver. Talk a little bit about the different attempts to get shad across over those dams and up the river. Well, the major difficulty is that they're high-head dams. We call them high-head because they're very tall dams. Uh, structurally, and and um, one of the challenges is to figure out a flow pattern um, that, where you could use the flows of the rivers to direct the uh, migratory course of the fish into a passageway, whether it's a ladder or a fish lift or some other mechanism, uh, that then would swim naturally around the dams or into a, into a passageway that would, uh, would move them above the dams uh, progressively, and then then to a mega smaller glass up river, and um, we've experimented quite a bit with with that technology, and really haven't even uh, all all the dams on the eastern seaboard really haven't come up with a way to successfully pass American shad on any of uh, any of its native rivers. And the 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 one method that uh, I think has been most used, I guess, is attracting the fish to a certain uh, flow of a jet of water and then actually putting them on an elevator and then trucking them around the other two dams? This what I described ha- used to happen at uh, Conowingo. Is, uh, was that ever successful? Well, believe it or not, Will, that was an old technique that we used, and, and uh, we went away from that hoping that we could develop uh, engineering techniques that would allow the shot to migrate themselves. Uh, through ladders or, or uh, lists that we didn't have to uh, capture them in the truck unless you can understand it's labor intensive. intensive. But it looks like that might, might have been the best way to do it. Uh, so we may be falling back to that as a as another temporary uh, measure to move more shad because we've seen the numbers of shad decline over time rather than increase over time as a result of our, our efforts with, with fish passage. Right. And, and once they get upstream and spawn... Remarkably, I understand the small fish uh, can come down the river to head out to the ocean, actually go through the turbines, and they're small enough so many survive, a large proportion? How about that? Well, it depends on the year. Uh, it depends on um, the stages of the river and the number that either go through turbines or over the, over the spin area of the dam and get passed out to the, to the ocean that way. Um, so we had good years with you know, some years with good success without migration, and then other years with poor success. So a lot depends upon the mother nature and the kind of flows she provides to the river. All right. So uh, we could talk for the entire time about American shad, but let's uh, let's go back to what another species of fish you mentioned, 
and your concerns about them, the smallmouth bass, problems you saw first showing up around 2005? Yeah, when we look back in history, smallmouth really aren't a native species to the Susquehanna. Uh, they were reintroduced uh, through a, a stocking uh, by the Commission in, in the uh, late 1800s. But they've become naturalized to the river. They fill a rich ecological niche in the river that wasn't filled by another species and really took off and, and really made the Susquehanna a, um, a, a place where uh, people from all around the world come to fish for smallmouth bass. Uh, they're, they're great recreational fish. Fish. Um, they're fun to, fun to catch. They they grow to twenty inches plus in size. And uh, the, the river, the fish in our river is really special. Uh, a lot of times, people uh, animals will go to Canada or other places to fish in lakes. But our fish have a different body design. The the body design is designed to, to to take care of the, the high river flows that have extremely wide tails. Uh, to navigate the river fence versus the lake, and uh, they're just an exceptional fish uh, to catch. So um, we were very concerned in 2005 when we start, started seeing the decline of the fishery, because prior to that, I, I, I myself, you know, as a biologist, stopped by, I was just having travel to Harrisburg for readings, and I would take the time before I went home to fish the river in the evenings, and it wouldn't be a problem to catch over 100 bass myself in the evening of fishing. And uh, gradually, even I personally saw that decline in, and, and, and fishing related to the mortality we were seeing with those young bass. And that was that's a catch-and-release fishery, generally? It certainly is, but there are people that chose to, to, to catch and keep fish, and that, that was fine to do when the population was healthy. But gradually over time, um, what we had to do was the agency responsible for protecting and manage, managing the fish. We had to put restrictions on, on, uh, on the fishery, in the area of the river where we were seeing this have a population effect from Sunbury down to the Maryland line. So in 2011, my board of uh, commissioners acted and, and put restrictions, catch and release restrictions on the fishery from Sunbury down to the Maryland line and up to Juniata River to Newport and, uh, and, and the lower ends of uh, most of the major tributaries on the river. So you, you can still fish for bass, but you can't keep them. Right. And and the lesions are uh, something that are showing up more and more and are a special worry to you. Describe them and, and what you think may be the cause of these lesions in the fish and, and the impact on the fishery. Well, the lesions are uh, really a, a, um, a response to uh, a, the fish's immune system being uh, stressed by some stressor. And um, what happens is, just like with humans, whenever our immune systems get stressed, uh, we become susceptible to, to bacterial or viral infections, which is why we get colds and flus and other things. So the same thing is going on with the fish. Something is stressing the fish to have bacteria that lives in the river all the time that doesn't affect healthy fish to begin starting to affect these young fish that were unhealthy. And... Um, all of a sudden, we had this explosion of dead fish in, in 2005 and calls from others up and down the basin about asking what was going on with the river. And we didn't know. Um, so our stock biologists who have been sampling the river for decades uh, and sites every year to follow trends and, and what the population trends are like so that we know the year class strength, how strong the year class might be from year to year, uh, looks like in the, in the future so that we can better manage the fishery. 
um, we, we set our vows and sat and took the milk at the river, and, and they, they saw these dead and dying fish. And um, after several years of study, we um, hired the U.S. Geological Survey to conduct a dissolved oxygen study in the river. And it didn't matter that in the middle of the river and the edge habitats where these young fish live, we found that the dissolved oxygen levels in these microhabitats, we call them, around the edge of the river, was was, because, was was falling so low during the evenings that, that it was causing the stress uh, to these young fish and allowing them to become infected by bacteria. And the, the, the source or the reason for the low DO levels? Well, it, it, it typically, we don't see DOs um, decline like, like this in, in flowing rivers. Uh, they often occur in estuaries like the bay or, or, or lakes and pilot sections of, of rivers or natural lakes. But typically you don't see it in flowing water because the oxygen is the oxygen levels are a direct response to plant growth in the river. The plants photosynthesize, they produce oxygen during the day with the sunlight, but at night they quit producing oxygen and they continue respiration, they continue breathing, and so they, there's you know, there's too many plants in the, in the water, they deplete the oxygen levels and take that away from the animals that might live in that water body, whether it's the bay or a lake or a river. So traditionally, we don't see those kind of fluctuations in the river because as the water, water tempest on the tributaries and in the mainstream, it typically gets aerated and re-aerated and re-aerated. Uh, so we never really typically see oxygen problems in Florida water. In this case, we saw that we had so many plants um, that they were causing the same depletion as, as what happens with either the aquatic plants and systems like a bear or, or, or uh, and so are you are you uh, thinking that there's a correlation between levels of pollution, uh, too much nitrogen and phosphorus coming into the river that are causing these dissolved oxygen problems, or might it be something else? No, there's no doubt about it. I mean, I just look from the scientific literature and anybody that practices uh, any of the aquatic sciences know that when you see nuisance aquatic growth, in the water body, it's because of nutrients. In rivers, it's a little different than the bay, since the nutrients that flow into the banks uh, settle in and get absorbed into the sediments, and then get taken up by plants to grow out of the sediments. In a river, they get, they get dissolved in the water column, so there has to be a continuous surge of nutrients down the, the river in the water. And typically, uh, for, for the kind of plants that live in a river, it's, it's, it's dissolved phosphorus or liquid phosphorus. And that's the rate-limiting nutrient for flowing water. And this leads, John, to the, the inevitable conclusion, which is as follows. Uh, improving water quality in Pennsylvania, or let's say it the other way, uh, uh, elements which have caused problems in the Chesapeake Bay's water quality are also causing problems in Pennsylvania's freshwater rivers and streams. So to improve the water quality in Pennsylvania, we're going to get a secondary benefit downstream, and it's a true win-win uh, prospect. Uh, absolutely. The, uh, uh, fixing the problem I just explained in our river is, is part of the formula to improve the bay. Yeah, and, and it's, you know, it's frustrating for us because as we work in Pennsylvania, and we've been in Pennsylvania for almost 30 years now working with all of the... Uh, 
all, all of the land uses coming into the river from, from farmers and municipalities and industries, you know, we're often uh, uh, criticized somewhat as just being worried about the bay downstream. And of course, that's not true at all. And I think you've really articulated well the benefit of the strategies to help the Chesapeake Bay are strategies which will help Pennsylvania rivers and streams be better able to serve both the fish and wildlife as as well as the humans who enjoy them. Yeah, I don't think we should think of it as a bay problem. It's really a watershed problem, and we need to look at it like that if we're going to come up with solutions to fix it. Amen. A, a systemic problem. Well, John, you've talked a lot um, recently and, and been a real advocate for designating the Susquehanna uh, as impaired. Could you tell us a little bit about what that means and what the process is and what your prospect, what you think the prospects are? Sure. Well, we, um, the, the impairment designation is a regulatory designation that, that triggers um, putting together a plan to, to, to fix a water body, whether it's a lake, stream, or river. And it, it, it carries with it the significance of I can get to you and I going to a doctor's office and thinking we're sick. And we try to convince the physician that we're, we're sick. We're impaired. And, and the physician says, no, uh, you're not sick and sent you home. So you go back and you say, doc, I'm really sick. So he does the diagnostics and the tests to make sure whether you are sick or not, which is the move we're in for the river. We've been studying the river to tell whether it's sick or not, impaired or not, since 2005. And we really haven't come to a conclusion. Well, EPA has now told our state DEP here in Pennsylvania that by hook or crook, in 2016, they've got to determine whether the river's sick or healthy. Prior to 2010, our state has said the river was was, uh, attaining its uses. In other words, it was healthy. Uh, But then after we we began raising the questions about sick fish, um, DEP decided to, uh, to put it on a a list that's kind of in limbo, where it says that um, they're unsure whether it's sick or healthy, and they need more data to determine whether it is. So we've been conducting tests, uh, both academics, uh, state and federal researchers have been doing studies about a large data set of information, not quite as large as for the day, but pretty significant for a major river. And we've used this process called CATAS, the causal analysis um, uh, decision diagnosis information system the EPA has, it integrates multiple stressors. It's not just uh, trying to make a decision on one cause, but you, you're integrating multiple stressors, and then what you can do is you can uh, eliminate those stressors that you don't believe are causing any problems to the past and, and include those stressors that you believe are. And DEP is going to be announcing the results of that report here within the next couple of weeks, and then what, we'll do, what they'll do is they'll include that and, and how they're going to make the decision about whether or not the river's impaired or not. And just for our listeners, DEP is the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection. Yeah, I, I love your analogy. The Susquehanna is a patient which has come into the doctor. It's been describing all of its ailments, showing evidence of its ailments, uh, worried about its future health. And the doctor keeps sending it home and saying there's nothing wrong with you. Um, What possible motivation would there be to not designate the river as impaired so that prescriptions could be written, 
a health regime could be put in place, and uh, all of us, Pennsylvanians uh, and those of us downstream as well, would enjoy better water. Well, there's a whole variety of factors, as you know, whether it influences those kinds of decisions, economics, uh, political factors, science. Uh, even though the decision itself should be driven by the science that we have. However, I'm a scientist. I, I, I was trained as a fisheries biologist, and, and you're trained in, in, in school to uh, try to minimize the uncertainty. So you keep repeating experiments over and over again, minimizing uncertainty to a reasonable degree of scientific certainty is a judgment call when you get to court. And in this case, there's just so many factors that could be affecting the river that the scientists that are studying that are so concerned about minimizing the uncertainty to a degree of, of, of confidence, whether it's 99.9% confidence or whatever the level might be, before that decision is made about whether the river is sick or not. And the judge once told me that I was testifying to an expert witness. Mr. Riley said, I don't really care if you're certain to 99.9%. 70 or 80% is pretty good for me. So the question is, do we just move forward with tipping the scales, or do we need to be um, using the beyond a reasonable doubt standard? Right, and the longer we delay, the more expensive it will be, the worse the condition of the river will be. So it does seem ironic that uh, this requirement of absolute certainty, almost to the point of, of knowing what is causing the impacts even before the designation of impaired, which then would uh, allow various strategies to be put in place to try to figure out more and to decide what needs to be done has been so delayed. I. I commend you and I thank you for your advocacy on behalf of the river because you really have been the voice of, uh, of credibility, certainly, and science speaking out for the need to, uh, to make the impaired designation so we can get on with uh, addressing the improvement. Well, thanks, Will. Somebody has to speak for the fish. Somebody does have to speak for the fish, and, and you've been doing it a long time, John. So. Looking out in the future, what what are your hopes? What are your fears? How are you feeling right now? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic, but cautiously optimistic. I, 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 I believe that we've really shared the science amongst ourselves uh, to, to come to some decision about what to do with the river. Uh, in the meantime, we created a campaign called the SOS campaign, Save Susquehanna campaign, and it was really uh, an origin out of my frustration and desperation about nobody doing anything about the river. We're just arguing about whether the river's sick or not while while continues to get sicker. So um, we created SOS. Uh, that's the International Distress Call for for, uh, for, for Distress. This is stressing for distress. And uh, we've been driving contributions from concerned anglers and others. We've accumulated about $30,000 right now. Our goal is 50 I pledged to match that with 50000 create a, a, um, $100,000 so that we can go out and start doing projects one form at a time, much like CDF is doing, uh, and, and making the, uh, the river better. We're going to strategically locate those projects so that we can measure response and measure to see how our money is working relative to making the river uh, better. Save our Susquehanna, what a noble cause and something that I think a lot of our listeners, hopefully those in Pennsylvania, will be able to join. I know you have a website uh, 
Uh, the Chesapeake Bay Foundation has a office of 10, 12 people in Harrisburg. We have scientists, lawyers, uh, lobbyists, uh, and those who work with farmers in uh, helping to restore natural filters to the land. You know, John, that we pledge our 100 uh, percent cooperation and support to help you build Save Our Susquehanna to a, a, a truly uh, a vibrant uh, uh, cause and and one that really will be making a difference going forward. Uh, I should tell our listeners that that John Orway uh, did come and speak to our board of trustees when we met on retreat a month ago in York, Pennsylvania, and we we really appreciate that, John, and everything you've been doing. Anything else you'd like to add before we sign off? I just have to thank CDF. You really created the model that we could use at a smaller scale for the river. You've made tremendous uh, 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 progress with what you've done for the bay. Um, we just need to apply what you've done and, and apply it to the river. And I really appreciate the help of Harry Cabot and the Pennsylvania Office and you, Will, for supporting this effort because what's good for the river is good for the bay. I couldn't have said it better, John. It, 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 it is one uh, ecological system that makes up the entire Chesapeake Bay and its watershed of rivers and streams and main stem. And then, of course, you know, what a lot of people don't realize is that the ocean impact coming in at the southern end of the bay is really just as much of a part of the overall system as the rivers and streams which feed freshwater into the Chesapeake. So it's truly a system Hopefully, we'll learn in the future to treat it as a single system and not fragment it into thinking about one piece here and one piece there and disconnected and politics and all the rest, which have frustrated you and all of us who've been working on this system for the last uh, several decades. So, John Orway, Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Fish and Boat Commission, uh, thank you so much. This is Will Baker. President of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, invite our listeners to go on our website at cbf.org. You can pick up this podcast or any of the past ones, and please encourage friends and family to do the same. Thank you again, John. Thank you, Will.